and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Today we're going to be talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife, with the show's supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer Will Files, as well as the film's composer, Rob Simonson. These guys were brought onto the film by director Jason Reitman, who really did an extraordinary job crafting a real love letter to the film Ghostbusters from 1984, which of course was directed by his own dad, Ivan Reitman. Will and Rob had a great amount of fun digging through the old archives of material that had been preserved for almost 40 years from the original 1984 Ghostbusters film to help craft the track of this new movie. Rob, Will, and I had a lot of fun really nerding out talking about old sound design technology and music recording technology from the era that they worked through as they worked really hard to make this very modern film sound like an authentic Ghostbusters experience. Let's hear how they did it. Rob, Will, thank you guys so much for coming to talk to us about Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, I I have to admit, uh, I fanboyed out on this movie you know, I think I, I was a teenager when the first one came out, when the original Ghostbusters came out. And, you know, I loved it. Uh, I've always loved the original film and uh, and the new uh, the new film from Jason Reitman does not disappoint. It's really it's kind of a love letter to the original, but also takes us in a completely new direction, introduces new characters, new situations. It's really it's really great. So I'm I'm really thrilled to sit down with you guys and talk about this movie today. Well, very happy to be here. Yeah, man. Thank so one of the things that, of course, struck me from the opening logo uh, on Ghostbusters Afterlife is, is uh, Jason Reitman's signals to us from that very first moment um, that there's going to be a lot of Easter eggs and callbacks to the original film, even from, you know, the, the opening music on that logo as we go into the film. So I, I would love to hear from you guys about, like, what were your original con- conversations with Jason when you got involved with the project, um, what did he talk to you about in terms of, of making a film that was going to have those callbacks, but yet still be fresh and, uh, and, and, and that kind of nostalgia, I I felt drove both the sound design and the music. So I'd love for you to talk about your initial conversation with Jason and how you how that affected your approach to the film. Will, was that ting that opens the film? Was that, just music or was that is that also the sony ting remind me of the well i mean the thing for me that i'm assuming glenn's talking about here is the ons yeah right the ons martino which is such a it's such a signature sound of of ghostbusters it's uh it's it's a i mean you rob you can probably talk about it more but it's basically a synthesizer yeah and so the owned martino was a it's a kind of theremin-like synthesizer. It was one of the earliest synthesizers. Um, it's a French, made by a French guy back in the 20s. And Elmer Bernstein, the composer of original Ghostbusters um, and longtime collaborator of Ivan Reitman, used it in a lot of his scores. And so it's all over Ghostbusters. And it's, it's one of the signature sounds of Ghostbusters because it sounds like a ghost. It's interesting because you listen to other Elmer scores there's no ghosts. He's still using the owned, <laughs> but it was such a amazing use in, in Ghostbusters. So Jason, um, you know, when we sat down to talk about the movie, he said, you've got to put yourself aside. This is about caring, you know, what has already been done. 
so this this is really about kind of being custodians of what was done. Custodians maybe isn't the right word, but uh, I, I, keepers of the yeah, plan, yeah, yeah. Pr- pr- protectors of it. And um, so, you know, we, we had a lot of conversations about that. And he said, I'm telling every department that that is the, the mission here. It's, it's not to do like what necessarily is like cool and modern and hip. And this is about discovering the original, keeping it and where we can, you know, walking forward, but in the close of the original. So I think it was really important for Jason to signal to everyone right at the opening logos, we got you and we're not going to abandon you because I think a lot of sequels and, and reimaginations of the franchise, there's a lot of things that fans of those movies love and they just kind of get left with the old one and say, we're doing it new. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of reboots can have a difficult time. And so I think this was Jason saying from, from the clothes to the, to the build of all the, you know, proton packs and all the devices to the music, everything, this is about using the original. So <clears throat> we did use a lot of Elmer's original score um, and sometimes re-recording it. And in some cases, getting the original stems of, I think there's an own sound in the opening that is the original owned recording. We even sampled the noise from the original. It, when the, As soon as the Sony logo comes on, if, you, if you're listening at a loud enough level, you'll hear a, a noise floor shift. And that's actually the noise that we sampled from the original multi-track recording of the of the score, and it just gives it a little flavor. <laughs> it was one of those things like we put it in and we're like, "This is going to be silly." And we put it in, and we're like, "Nope, that actually really feels good." Um, so it's there's a noise floor to this film um, that it's not normal for 2021. <laughs> Well, talk to me a little bit about that, because I wanted to ask you, uh, well, and obviously, same question for you in terms of kind of the nostalgia. There's a lot of the original sound design from the 84 film that you echo back to. So I'd love to ask you about that. And for both of you, like what, you know, were you going back into original elements? What was what was available to you? Kind of what state was that in? Because obviously the technology around sound and 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 music recording was uh, was was very different in 1984 than it is today. Yes, it was. Um, well, so, so the first, the first call I got from Jason was, well, actually I got, I got a, I got an email from Gil Kennan, who's the screenwriter and who's a good friend of Jason's and an old friend of mine. We did Monster House, you know, whatever that was 10, 15 years ago. Um, yes. Yeah. Which when which I was is, working, which is another, it's a, a great, it's film, a great film. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he was a screenwriter in this film with along with Jason, and he he called me and he said, "I've we've got this like Skunk Works operation at Sony, and I think you're probably the guy for the job. And Jason's going to call you and tell you more about it." And I was like, hmm, "Okay." And then it didn't even occur to me what it could have been. And then Jason calls me and says, "Hey, I got a script I want you to read." And of course, that ended up being Ghostbusters. So the first job was we've got this teaser trailer. We're going to shoot it in a few days. People, uh, most of the people at Sony don't even know about it. It's completely undercover. They, they had it actually, they were hiding it in the budget of another film. Um, Cause it was so secret. They didn't even like, there was a couple people at the top of, this, of Sony that knew about this thing. It was completely under wraps. And so 
he was like, okay, I've got this concept. It's going to be a shot. You're going to be pushing in on this barn and you're going to be hearing somebody in the barn tinkering with, with a machine and it's, it's going to be firing up and misfiring, misfiring, misfiring. And then it finally catches. And it's very clearly the sound of the proton pack turning on. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, not only is this just, you know, my favorite movie, but it's also like this whole teaser is basically done with sound. So I spent a couple days mining the Sony archives to find the all the original elements. And it turns out that they'd done an amazing job of, of curating all these things from, we had all the original stems from the 84 film. We had a lot of original elements from uh, Richard Beggs, who was the sound designer on the original film, including a lot of material that never made it into the original film. So we had we had raw work tape recordings of him like just goofing around, which you know you could hear him combining sounds and playing with synthesizers, and we had all these things that were sort of like, you know, when you hear like a famous song by like the Beatles, but it's an outtake. It's like, oh, that's that's that song, but there's these differences in it, you know, and that was actually a, a real wealth of of material for us because we were able to use things, especially for that first teaser, where like, well, that's almost the sound but it's not quite the sound. So I was able to like take it and make it sound like it was misfiring by combining it with other things. And, and then finally, when you know, the final one hits, it's the one that we all know. Um, but that, that initial fishing expedition uh, was, was great because we had found all this material that we were able to use for the whole rest of the film, including the original 32 track dash recording uh, that we found of the score, which we sent to Rob. And they were able to go in and mine it for, you know, bits and pieces. Um, because luckily, is as long ago as that was, that was sort of the advent of early multi-track record, or, you know, large multi-track recording. So I don't know if it was originally recorded on 32-track dash, which was an early digital format, a reel-to-reel digital format. Um, but at some point, it was at least all transferred to that. So we had a fairly clean, fairly robust 32-track with all the original elements of the score. Um, and then I was able to get in and mine, you know, all sorts of sounds from the uh, sound effects stems as well. So we, throughout the whole film, we pulled lots of little things out. Like for example, when Phoebe slides down the fire pole for the first time down into the basement, that's actually the sound of Dan Aykroyd sliding down. Hey, does this pole still work? This place is great. When can we move in? You've got to try this pole. Which is actually from from the from the actual recording on set. It's from the production sound. So that sound we stole and we put in. Just to, you know, we tried to like hide lots of little Easter eggs because we're all we're all Ghostbusters nerds. 
Um, and I think, you know, like much like Rob, I watched that movie so many times that it was like in my psyche, like deep in there, um, which was why I, I was so impressed with what Rob was able to do with the music because it, even the new themes that he wrote were very evocative of that world um, and that style that Elmer, you know, very playful, lyrical kind of thematic stuff, which frankly, it's the kind of score that sadly doesn't get written much anymore, which was such a refreshing thing to work on a, a movie with such like fun music. Something you just said makes me, makes me uh, want to ask, um, you know, you can also go too far with that, right? Too much on the, too much on the nostalgia, too much on the, the, the callbacks. So Rob, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, Will was just very congratulatory for the, the, the new material that you wrote, but can you talk a little bit about striking that balance of just putting enough nostalgia in there to make it, make you feel warm and, and fuzzy and like you're being well taken care of, but, but also carving out some new space and territory as well. Yeah, well, I knew that we were going to be deriving a lot of what we were doing from Elmer's materials. So the first thing that I did was uh, get the scores to the original. And I knew that it would be a little bit of a, of a homework assignment. You know, this was going to be going into the school of Elmer. So not just listening to Ghostbusters, but listening to a lot of Elmer's work, especially from that era, because he had kind of developed into a certain language and had a certain way that he would approach things. Um, and I just, I had, you know, this is, this is where I work and I had a, a music stand right here with the Ghostbusters score open for, you know, a year. Cause that's about how long we were, we ended up working on the film, which was lovely. Um, and you know, it was also a kind of historical study of how things were scored in the 80s, in the mid 80s, mid 80s action adventure scores. And so, you know, looking at the classics, E.T., Goonies, Back to the Future, you know, watching these movies, really picking apart the scores. And what happened is I started to think in that way, because that's kind of what you have to do. You know, because there's a spirit to it. It's not just about the notes. It's the spirit of how you're treating a scene. And we had some um, musical rules. You know, if there were synth sounds, they came, they were the same synth sounds that the originals used. So I actually bought a DX7. Um, and uh, sadly, there is um, a really good like one-to-one -one software version of the DX7 from Archuria. And we had the DX7 all set up and I was A-Bing it on all the sounds and I was just like, oh, it's exactly the same. And I died, I died. <laughs> Especially because, you know, it was like not a cheap little thing to buy. And, you know, they're going for like, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks nowadays. And it was just like, oh, I finally found a pristine one and I hooked it up. I was like, this is great. And then A beat it and I just close your eyes and you can tell absolutely no difference because it was a digital synth. So analog synths, you know, you have a harder time replicating exactly the, the noise and how everything, the, you know, oscillators can kind of have a lot of life when they're going through all of the transistors, but the DX7 was digital. So anyway, um, and one of the other rules that Jason said is, you know, if it, no, 
staccato ostinatos, basically. Like da 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 Anything that sounds like a modern action film um, was banished <clears throat> from the landscape. Um, so then, you know, it, it just became this, this mental exercise of watching these films, studying these films and studying the musical techniques that these composers were employing and then just trying to think through those, those ways. And it, it really did feel like there were new neural pathways. And before, when I would think about how I would score a scene, it was, it was very different. And I knew that I'd be <clears throat> kind of going to school in that regard. And I, I think I came out a much better composer because <laughs> I, I digested a lot of that stuff. That's interesting. Well, and of course, you know, uh, one of the staples of every 80s film was to stop the film cold in the middle and have a montage sequence with a pop song. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, we didn't do that. <clears throat> yep. That might have been that might have been taking it just a little bit too yeah. far, but it would have been a it would have been a fun thing. Well, what was the original um, the original eighty four film? Was that just a was that a, was that just an LTRT release, or was there like a was there a six was there a seventy millimeter six track element did they do, or what, there, what was actually the you know to tell the truth, I'm not sure. I'm assuming in eighty four it would have been um, mixed for LCRS, you know, um, which is Dolby Stereo. Um, it's, it's possible that they mixed a, um, uh, a 70 millimeter six track, which is similar to what we would consider five one. Now, um, the thing that makes me think that is that the stems that are available are, are five one stems. And I'm sure, you know, remixes were done after the fact down the line, but the separate, there's enough separation in the stems that makes between the front and the rear that it makes me think. And there's true stereo material in the rear, which makes me think it was mixed in six track originally, but I couldn't find that information. Yeah. I mean, it was a long time ago. The funny thing is that the supervising sound editor, uh, who, who's actually, he runs the sound department at Sony now, the supervising sound editor of the first film. And I went, you know, of course, when, when we started doing the gig, I went and talked to him and he's like, you know, it's funny. I, it was so long ago. I don't remember a lot of that. Like, I don't remember how we did half that stuff because it was just like, it was crazy. He said, first of all, the thing about Ghostbusters, a lot of people don't realize is that it happened very quickly. Like that film was really rushed in post-production. They almost didn't finish it in time. Yeah. I remember reading about that. That was, uh, I think they, it was something insane. Like they finished shooting it in March and released it in yeah. June. Like yeah. it, it was, it was just Which, insane. And the visual, the visual effects were yeah. all incredibly rushed. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was insane. The post schedule. Yeah. And I mean, we thought we, we had a, a rush schedule to begin with, but then of course COVID happened and we ended up having a very long schedule <laughs> with lots of breaks, but actually it ended up being a cool thing for the movie. Like we actually came back and made changes to the film a couple times that all made the film better. I wanted to ask you about that because I, I, I presume that, you know, knowing directors as I do, they're, they're, they're never going to just like leave something no. alone. Right. So, so w w was this a process? Cause I know the release date like got reestablished several times. Was that sort of like every time they would put a new release date on, did you guys come back in and take another pass at it or how did no. it, how did it kind of evolve over the Jason's time? a pretty, um, decisive filmmaker usually once he makes up his mind about something it doesn't waver which is exactly what you want in a director um especially as a collaborator but uh 
he did have a chance to see it with a couple audiences later in the process. And I think it gave him some insight into a couple pacing and, you know, kind of ideas, you know, when you, when you see it with an audience, you always feel different about it. Um, and you see it through their eyes. And I think, you know, you feel, you read the energy in the room. And I think he decided based on that, that he wanted to, um, tighten a couple things and swap a couple things. Um, and then the other thing that came out of it was he had some, some footage that he'd shot that never made it into the film. And he also had this little piece of, well, I shouldn't give too much away, but basically he had an idea that he never had a chance to fully realize because we were kind of rushed the first time. And he did have enough time because of COVID. So he decided to go and shoot a couple things to augment the pieces that he already had so he could create this moment at the end of the credits that set up an idea that he had. Anyway, I don't want to take anything away from the experience, but it was a nice thing that Jason got the chance to add this little nugget in um, that was an idea that had been brewing for a long time for him. So, you know, I've been around in this business long enough, Will, as you know, uh, you know, it, it used to be the case that there was uh, often inevitably a bit of a tug of war between the sound design and the music departments on, on, on a mix. And I think that one of the things I'm really thrilled about is that more and more we're seeing the music departments and the and the the sound design effects departments, uh, it, you know, if not openly collaborate, at least communicate with each other and and not uh, not be sworn enemies on the final mixing stage. So I, I love the fact that you're both here talking about this film. Can you talk a little bit about your working relationship? And obviously, you guys seem to be somewhat friendly with each other. Like, how do you well, how do you guys how do you guys we work had together? a chance to drink some tequila together in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> which is always a good, yeah, a lot of tequila. Rob, Rob was bringing in these amazing bottles of tequila, which, um, you know, should have been enough to last a few days, but they lasted about an hour. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, we, we have, we actually all had a chance to hang out a lot in the mix, which was great. Um, it doesn't always happen that way, but, uh, Rob was there and was very gracious about letting us put noises all over his beautiful soundtrack. Ah. Um, but Rob, I don't know about you, but I feel like in a lot of ways, the style of the music allows it to coexist with sound design in a way because it, because it's so lyrical and because it's so thematic and because it's, it's not full of, you know, are lots of, lots of notes. It's like, I feel like the music was very melodic. And so it actually gives room for the sound design to coexist in a nice way. And I think it was also as much as Rob approached it, uh, the music from an eighties sort of perspective, we tried to also do that with the sound design. So not making it overly busy and not making it, um, overly, uh, bright and harsh and, you know, hyper detailed. It was mostly about like, you know, bigger, bigger moments and, you know, signature sounds and, and, and trying to, you know, ear candy stuff that was, you know, both familiar sounds from the original and also new stuff that we were making, but trying to go for almost thematic sound design, much as Rob was doing thematic music. Yeah, it was, I was getting files uh, as they were making them. So I, I knew uh, what was going on and the tone of things. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things that I really love about working with Jason is that he he opts for sound design and and a mix approach from a 
dramatic perspective, not a realistic perspective. So it's not about getting the ambience of the world that you hear it all the time. It's like, well, what's important? So then when there is a sound design moment, I mean, everything else can drop away and you know, you're just hearing the sound effect if that's the, you know, the, the dramatic moment. But I felt like he was very good about knowing what should be a music moment and what should be a sound design moment. So those things could kind of hand off to each other in a really friendly way. And I think another thing that I really haven't thought about, I didn't think about much too much at the time, but, um, now that I'm doing this film that I'm doing now, which is a very modern thing. And in the score, I'm doing a lot of things that sound like sound design because it's a futuristic kind of thing. Um, it's much more cluttered. There's a lot more kind of car crashes happening sonically. And, you know, with Ghostbusters, when it's just pure orchestra and you're doing everything with pure orchestra and you're not trying to get these pulsy things happening that are taking up so much of the low end and these, you know, it's, it's just about how much room you're taking up in the sound field and the orchestra in the eighties films, a lot of times that stuff works so well because it can be very thin, but it's still very emotional. And so there's a lot of moments where I know this is going to be a sound design moment. So the music can get out of the way. I know what part of the frequency spectrum they're going to take up. So I'm going to be around it. I'm going to try to find, you know, if they're high, I'm going to be low. And with action stuff, it was really just about the trumpets, <laughs> you know, trumpets and, and cymbal crashes. Um, because a lot of things can just pipe away and, you need these little signals, these musical signals that action music is happening or exciting music is happening. And then it can kind of tuck down. So a car is blaring, the sirens are blaring, proton plaques, packs are blaring, things are exploding, ghosts are screaming, kids are screaming. It's like there's so much, but you just have a few moments where, you know, you can butt it up with the trumpets and it's like, oh, right. And then it just kind of simmers underneath. And if you watch a lot of those 80s films, that's kind of how it is. And that was one of the things that was so great about studying that stuff. And and John Williams is such a master of that and Silvestri too. But they just give these little signals and then everything just starts piping away. And all of the sound effects is, is happening. And then you just every once in a while get enough of a signal that your brain registers. There's exciting music happening on top of all of this stuff. Ah! So... That was, you know, I thought a lot about that as I was doing the action scenes. That's actually a really good analysis. I hadn't thought about that. But, you know, I think probably like you guys, I grew up with a very big collection of John Williams score albums from all of those 80s movies. And you're you're totally right. You kind of listen to them and they're, they're weird to kind of just listen to on their own because you get those punctuated moments of like, and the weird thing is like when that moment happens, you immediately get an image in your head of like what happened, you know, what was the action sequence that was actually being punctuated by the music at that point. But you're right. They kind of like, just like they simmer along and then there's, there's, there's a punctuated moment there. That's interesting. Yeah, because a lot of modern action scores nowadays, they're constant low war drums, beefy, you know, synth basses, huge horns. You're taking up so much room and 
it, one of the things that that I was really surprised at when I started really paying attention is how little bass there was in those scores. You know, and it's the opposite now. It's all about the bass. You know, you listen to Sicario, it's just bass and distorted drums. You know, you listen to The Dark Knight, it's low strings, low brass, thunderous drums. You know, a lot of, and it, it's so effective. It's a completely different style and it's a style that I love. Um, but even it's not, it's, it's, and it's not even that they didn't, they did write for the basses, but even just sonically, it's scooped out. And I think part of it is the tech that they were using at the time. The, you know, the, the, the frequency spectrum, the frequency range of tape, you know, is, is less than digital. And so you get into this concoction of the mics, the pre's, the boards, and also, I think, what theater sound systems were doing. So it, it, it was impossible to represent bass in the way that it is today. So it's, it's a really, it's interesting. I think a lot of accidents and then a lot of intentional writing for what was going to be successful, not in theaters, but in old televisions. And there just isn't a lot of bass. Like Back to the Future, listen to Back to the Future. There's yeah. no bass. <clears throat> There's no like sub bass. There's no sub bass. That's yeah, right. And, and that's actually something, Rob, that we, if you remember on the mix that we actually ended up playing around with too, because Jason was very much, especially in the first couple of reels, he was very much about evoking the feeling that you felt, Glenn, which was like, this feels like a warm blanket. This feels very familiar. And there was a lot of discussion around how, mix wise, how, how do we achieve that? And so we we had you know we put the original mix up on this on the stage multiple times the '84 score and the '84 mix and sort of analyzed the same as Rob was doing on a musical level, and of course you know you had tape tape distortion tape compression you know and all the wonderful little harmonics that you get with that so we were using multiple levels of tape saturation emulation in the mix, um, you know on a, obviously with software but you know it's pretty convincing. Um, and that was true on the sound effects and the music side. And then we found with some cues that even though the orchestration was very similar to how Elmer Bernstein had done it and the recording, the timbre, you know, the various, you know, the general feel of the music was very similar to the 84 score. We found that there was in some cases more significantly more energy in the low frequencies. And so it was sometimes as simple as using a filter and actually getting rid of everything below, you know, 60 cycles or 80 cycles. And suddenly, yeah, Jason goes, oh, that's it. You know, it's like really, it was almost like band passing it. And because, you know, all those, all that stuff was recorded on tape, on magnetic film with, you know, various levels of, of, of uh, noise reduction and that kind of thing. And, you know, companding and all that kind of stuff, uh, it had a sound, you know, and part of that sound was that you really couldn't go down to 20 hertz like we can now. Well, yeah, because and I'm sure, you know, this was before your your time, Will, but before, you know, before digital, before digital playback systems in theaters, I mean, the, the Dolby guy in the mix was basically just sitting back there with his arms crossed over his chest saying, like, that's not going to go. No, to I'll optical, never make right? it optical, kid. Yeah, so that's why all that bass was gone, right? So it's really, yeah. it's really interesting. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, low, low end has it's less efficient sonically, meaning it takes more signal on tape to make the same amount of energy in the room acoustically. So um, 
you to get more headroom out of your out of your track if you're recording the tape you wanted to limit the amount of bass especially low low bass um, because it would just eat up headroom um, so you often would filter it out uh, you wouldn't ever you wouldn't even record it in the first place unless you really needed it but you know most sounds like the, like like the on martino um, Jason did this thing in the very beginning first of all Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure we had the original player who was played on the 84 and the same actual instrument that was played on 84. Is that right? It Definitely the same player. I believe the same instrument, but um, I'd have to verify that. That's pretty cool. And so Jason was telling us a story on the stage because in the beginning of the film, the the on the line goes... And it goes like an, a full octave deeper. And he was saying on, on during the recording, he was like, what, what can you do with this instrument that we never did in the first film? And she goes, well, it, it does go lower than we ever used. And so that's why, you know, Rob built in that extra, goes one just full octave lower. And it's it's very satisfying moment and right in the beginning of the movie. If you listen to that moment in the film or in the soundtrack, you'll actually hear the speaker rattling. You'll hear this like kind of clicking rattling sound and it's an acoustic thing and it kind of makes you realize, oh, this is, it, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting little sonic moment there, but that's something to look for. And that's, that's an example of, this, of a sound that even though it's quite deep sounding and feeling, it doesn't actually have a lot of low, low, like what we can what we would consider sub bass but it has the feeling of sub bass so that's something i often talk about with my sound editors um, from a sound design perspective is like don't count on big speakers and and subwoofers to make things sound big because if you play it on an iphone or something you have you have to you have to choose sounds that inherently sound big and inherently sound deep and something like the ons has all these wonderful overtones and distortion essentially um that give it that sense of bigness and that sense of deepness and richness um without actually going down to 20 hertz um so that's we tried to build a lot of that into the sound design side as well and what you're hearing is uh so the way that the owned is is amplified uh they, they actually made a few different um resonators is what they're called but the main resonator is a suspended symbol uh in a box and there's a transducer on basically glued on to the uh, to the symbol and then this tone goes to the transducer and it vibrates the symbol so the symbol is inside this kind of slim wooden box and when you get down so low it's vibrating pretty hard so what you're hearing is the signal or the symbol rattling inside this wooden box and that's probably one of the reasons that you can't play loudly down that low so it, you have physical limitations of that old piece as well but that's what gives it all those wonderful weird overtones you know yeah exactly the, the symbol 
yeah, the symbol, it's, it's similar to, uh, you know, if you hold the sustain pedal down on a grand piano and then amplify something into the grand piano, just the symbol has so many of these washy kind of overtones, which gives it as like ghostly kind of sound. Uh, in 84, they did not have access to digital sound systems, much less Dolby Atmos. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, to hear, you know, how, how did you guys utilize Atmos to, to, uh, kind of unlock some additional tension and excitement in this film and what's, what should we be listening to in the Atmos track of the film? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I was a little surprised how much Jason embraced Atmos because he's such an analog vintage guy. Um, but he, I think and he immediately understood that all it really represented to him was a larger canvas to play with and that he didn't have to use any, anything, you know, he, it was all there. It was available to use. Um, and it basically just gave us more real estate in the mix. And so what we ended up doing was having, there's a lot of moments in the film that are played very traditionally and very, you know, really just in, you know, what, basically a five one seven one type way and then in the bigger moments it explodes out into the room and it's a cool contrast you know you get something that feels very traditional and in one moment and then in the next moment you have something that you know feels much bigger um and more detailed and robust and all that sort of thing rob were you aware of like Dolby Atmos, and was that kind of a factor in your thinking at all as you were composing the music and laying out uh, the track spatially? Not at all. I think, if anything, we were just trying to keep it as left-right focused as possible. We did record in 5.1, um, and we delivered 5.1 stems, but we really didn't get into Atmos. And I think typically it's always best to, to leave that stuff uh, to the dubbing mixer anyway. Um you know, I think there will be a lot of moments in the in the Adam project that I'm doing now that things can kind of come forward and kind of scrape the ceiling and, and get into that. But I just think I don't know what other elements they're going to be wrangling in in the mix. And, um, you know, luckily working with Will and. Craig and when you're working with capable people, it's just, you know, it's another layer of the artistry that can come in, but I think it's always best to do that on the stage. And I'd say nine times out of 10, what we're getting is five, one these days um, from the, from the scoring mixers. Occasionally you get seven, one. And I have had projects where um, the scoring mixer has said, you know, I'm going to, I'm giving you some overheads as well. Um, you know, and you can put them in objects or whatever. Um, and usually they're, you know, mics that were literally above the orchestra and it is an interesting sound, but I think it's, um, like Rob said, it's what it usually ends up being is, you know, he's delivering us more raw material, just how, you know, the sound design is coming to the stage as, as it's, as, it's all ingredients. Right. And then with Atmos, we have this just bigger sonic canvas to play around with. So you can start moving things around. You can take, it doesn't matter what format it's coming in as because we just can then take that and wrap it around the room in whatever way we'd like. Uh, well, I know we're coming up uh, towards the end of our time, but there are a couple sequences I wanted to ask about. Rob, you were talking earlier about like a cacophony with the, the kids and the cars and the thing. I feel like you were talking about the, the, the muncher, the capture sequence uh, and the chase through Somerville, which I, it's a, a crazy sequence that I just love. I'd love to, for you guys just to talk to me a little bit about what's going on with the sonically in that sequence. 
everything. Both sound design. So I'll let you, I'll let you talk first, Will. <laughs> um, I mean, that's one of those scenes that it's it's everything's happening at the same time. You know, you've got dialogue happening. You've got you know car sounds. You've got um, you know all the tech and everything happening. Um, you've got explosions. You've got the stream of the of the neutrino wand. Um, and then you have Muncher vocals happening the whole time, which was a whole other journey in terms of finding the sound of that. And Josh Gad came in and made a bunch of amazing recordings for us. And then it was about picking the right things from moment to moment. And um, it, that is a, that's an example of a mix where you really have to pick what am I hearing from moment to moment? Um, as much as possible, you have to try to feature this sound and then this sound and then this sound and then this sound rather than like, here's all the sounds happening at the same time. You have to try to mix it in such a way where you're handing off these little micro moments to each other. And if you do it uh, gracefully enough, the audience doesn't ever think like, oh, why am I not hearing the car right now? Because even though the car might be featured very uh, visually in the shot, like you've got a, a shot where the, the, the ecto is like coming up you know, huge in the frame, but then you've got the little RTV in the foreground. And so, of course, at that moment, what I'm doing is I'm lowering the ecto and I'm, I'm featuring the RTV sound. And that's what you want is in that moment as an audience member. You want that kind of sonic focus pull. Um, and so that's, we, we try to do that as much as possible in, in that sequence where I, I don't want to clutter it up. I want it to be as clear as possible from moment to moment what we're hearing. And that leaves more room for the music, hopefully. Um, and that the music was really fun in that scene because it's like, duh, 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 duh. it's like, but it's not like staccato-y, it's like um, chuggy. Like the, the orchestra is like chugging away. And, and it, was, it was such a, I love the music in that sequence. Yeah, it was, uh, that was just, Jason said early on, he's like, the Muncher sequence. It's like, that's when the film really kind of kicks into a new gear. And um, I think it's, a, for me, it was three or four cues that kind of ran back to back. And I knew that th this was just, you know, one of the scenes that we have to nail in tone. Um, and I think I, I skipped ahead in the writing process to get that done just so that we knew like, okay, this is going to work. This is how it's going to work. This is how we're doing action. And Jason could breathe a little bit easier, I think, once he heard how the music was going to be for that. Um, and, it, you know, it was the same same kind of thing, like chugging with accents, um, you know, and, and knowing that I always am thinking about dialogue and sound effects as part of the compositional process. So if somebody has a line, I try my best to, you know, react to the line or set up the line, but not be doing something that is verbose, like a line of dialogue or a line of music at the same time. Cause you just, you know, you wind up into trouble, but holding things, or setting up a pattern that the brain can hear and then just like continuing that, then I think, you know, you're in, in good shape. And just really, I think overall, just this kind of, um, just getting the, yeah, the adventurous spirit of it, you know, was, was the most important thing. And so there's a lot of, and throughout the film, there's a lot of quotes of Elmer's material, but reharmonized using new chords so that 
people feel the connection to the original. They're hearing the th- the Ghostbusters, you know, dun, 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 dun. In the original, you hear that mostly, it, in fact, I think exclusively in a comedic way, you know, and there's the piano, and it's, it's really great for these, you know, bumbling New Yorker, you know, guys getting kicked out of college and being like, let's catch some ghosts. And, it, you know, it works for them. But when, and the film goes to places that the original never did, you know, action sequences and, and thrills and pace. So getting to reharmonize those things so that it feels more like a kind of badass you know, heroic moment using that theme. And there's a lot of that throughout the score, just taking the original material, reimagining it, reharmonizing it, recontextualizing it. And so, you know, that was, there's, there's some quoted moments of that theme in the Muncher chase specifically that I think we wanted to give people that like, yeah, feeling and, you know, hopefully we did it, but, yeah, my my favorite part of the music in that sequence is after the first section in the downtown when it's like crazy, 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 and they skid to a stop, and then we cut in back in the car, and they're all kind of like days, like what just happened? And it's this really fun, playful woodwind thing happening there. I love that because it it makes it feel like like how we all feel watching the the scene, which is like that was so fun, and how, how the kids feel in the car. Um, I, I just loved that part. It was so great. Oh, thanks. It, it, made me, it made me feel like a kid. Oh, good. Well, it would not be a Ghostbusters movie without Terror Dogs and <laughs> Stay Puft Marshmallows. And I love, I love that we see them all for the first time in a Walmart. Uh, that's a completely genius move. I, that must have been such a fun sequence to work on as well. It was. It was a hard sequence to work on. Um, the Much like getting the Muncher vocals to work, the um, the mini marshmallow men were very difficult to find the right tone for, um, and we we tried all kinds of stuff. I mean, uh, we we knew that it needed to be voices, obviously. Um, so we tried recording ourselves. Um, you know, Nate, one of the editors, recorded some stuff. Um, Chris Terhune, our lead sound effects designer, uh, recorded himself, and a lot of that is in the movie, actually. Um, but ultimately, you know, there's hundreds of them. Strawberry, red velvet, blue velvet. We actually brought in actors, like you know, groups of actors. And Jason would work with them and you know, coach them on. Okay, do this. Okay, now act out this little moment. And you know, so he and you know, of course, we tried all sorts of things, like um, let's take helium before we make these sounds, and like <laughs> <laughs> let's um, just try to try to do it ourselves with voices. Let's just you know, digitally pitch them up. Um, and in the end, it actually kind of being an amalgamation of all those kinds of ideas. Um, when uh, at, if there's a moment um, when one of the marshmallow men gets blended up, 
And at the end, he goes, he. Uh, that's me on helium. <laughs> that's one of my favorite little vocalizations in that whole sequence. Good job, Will. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> that is yeah. genius. Well, you you heard it here first, kids. <laughs> right. uh, but you know, the terror dogs were an interesting challenge uh, because the original film, the terror dogs, had such a distinctive sound, um, but it was actually pretty lo-fi uh, when we went and drug you know we got those sounds out of the original stems and um isolated them we realized that they're pretty low fidelity they didn't have a lot of like robustness to them so then the challenge was how can we build on that and you know use those sounds so it feels familiar but also then build sounds around it that have better fidelity which was kind of that was kind of the whole approach to the whole film in a lot of ways um so that was in the end, I think pretty successful, but one of the notes that Jason had was he wanted it to, when the dog is eating the, the dog food, the terror dog, he said, like, I wanted to sound like he's, he's like eating like bones. Like I wanted to sound like he's like violently eating that dog food. Um, Cause we had it, we kind of had it like played a little straight, like he's, you know, eating puppy kibble. Um, and Jason was like, no, it's not, it's not as funny if it's not, it needs to be more violent. So we ended up putting in literally like the sound of a of a lion eating like an antelope or something horrible. <laughs> Comedy through horror, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, it's like Rob said earlier. It, it, Jason's not so interested in the reality of of sounds. He's much much more interested in the dramatic impact of sounds, which is much more fun anyway. Well, I'll I'll just wrap up by asking uh, both of you. I got a chance to uh, to chat with Jason for a few minutes at the press junket, and I I asked him what his favorite kind of sound design moment uh, from the film is. So I'll ask you both the same question, Rob, for you your favorite kind of score moment that just makes you happy when it comes up. And Jason surprised me with his answer. He said he said his favorite sound design moment was uh, was and, and he called back. Uh, Will you you talked about the amazing sound design of the original film from the legendary uh, Richard Beggs, um, who I think this is probably the only comedy he ever worked on. But uh, but Jason said he like you he called out that sequence from the first film where they're in the elevator going up in the hotel to capture that first ghost and they they light up the proton pack for the first time and and he said that there's that switch and the the kind of that boom and then they all kind of move to the other edge of the of the of the elevator why worry each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back yep let's get ready switch me on and you're right it's a total sound design joke right that's that's a a moment that is completely made by sound. He called that out uh, in terms of like the nostalgia for the first time Phoebe fires up the proton packs and like that. That was his favorite sound design moment in the film. That's so my favorite sound I'll, design I'll moment the same. in the film, actually. <laughs> and you know what's funny about that? That was the first sequence we cut. That was the first. That was the first sound design we made for the movie, and we we you know did a few versions of it ourselves before we played it for Jason. And we played it for Jason. He was like, wow, that's, that's perfect. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, cause I was like, you know, ah, um, and it never changed. We never changed it a lick. Um, it, that, that stuck the entire film. Uh, but that was, 
that was our first real foray that it was building on what I had done in the teaser. But basically what I loved about that moment is that Jason got us intimate with this machine that we had heard and seen, you know, a million times in the, in the original films, but you'd never really looked at the details and, and really studied it the way that his camera does as it's moving up the, t- the back of the pack. Um, so we took a lot of Richard's original sounds, including all, you know, all the sounds when she's turning on all the, you know, different things and it's making all the different beeps and stuff. A lot of that was actually sounds that he had made that never made it in the film. So most of those sounds were things that he had made 30, 40 years ago. And then we were assembling them in a way that felt, you know, took a lot of manipulation and careful stitching together. But that's, I think one of the reasons that it feels so authentic was that it was all that stuff, you know, it was 40 year old synthesizer and recordings and things like that. Um, And then the next challenge was how do you make, you know, the the specifics of like the, the cyclotron, you know, and what does that sound like and things like that. So that was where we sort of took more creative license and we took some of the original identifiable fronton pack sounds and we started using more modern techniques like, you know, let's, let's Doppler that and make it sound like it's swirling around. Let's, um, there's a, there's a piece of software called sound particles that basically lets us build particle systems much like you would for, for creating visual effects for fire or water or things like that. And you can take a sound and feed it in there and it can create thousands of little sound particles from that sound. And then you can have them swirl around and do things that, um, you know, physically we could never actually do, but it has this really cool effect. Um, so we, we made a bunch of stuff like that and, you know, tried to weave it together in a way that felt not just sort of mechanical, but almost like musical where it was one thing was becoming another and then another and then another. Um, and then it was also just wonderful that that was a moment that Jason from the beginning was like, I don't want to play music on this. So you guys have to make it work with just sound design. <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah, challenge. So that would- Rob, 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 how about you? What was your, what's one of your favorite moments in the film? Yeah, I think honestly, the, the stay puff sequence, um, you know, it just, it just was a moment to kind of reference uh, the feeling of all those kind of, critter creature films from the eighties, you know, gremlins and critters, um, and just have, have fun with them. And it was also really challenging because of the vocalizations and there was a lot going on sound design wise and tone wise. I think I, that, that maybe was, I, I turned in more versions for that than any other sequence in the film. But I love where it landed and it's just, it's fun and it does have some moments where it quotes Elmer and some of the original stuff and it's just this kind of menacing, spooky little bit and uh, yeah, but where it ended up, it was it was great. It was really fun to record. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time and talking to us about uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. I, again, I just, this movie was so much fun, has such a great heart, was way more emotional than I expected it to be. Uh, I think it's fantastic, and I, I think it's going to be a huge success. So congratulations to both of you. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Thanks again to Will and Rob for talking to us today. And of course, thanks to our friends at Sony who helped put this interview together for us. You can experience Ghostbusters Afterlife and Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos at a Dolby Cinema near you. Just take a look at our show notes for the link to tickets. 
Before you go, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We've got more big episodes coming up, which you definitely will not want to miss. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed and our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks again for joining us. Sound and Image Lab is brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines, and our production coordinator is Sunny Chen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>